It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. In the fall of 2019, the New York Times unveiled the 1619 Project, this kind of sprawling special issue commemorating the 400th anniversary of the year African slaves were first brought to American shores. 1619 was the brainchild of star journalist and MacArthur genius Nicole Hannah-Jones. It claimed to be this daring deconstruction of America. This anniversary is the reason we even exist as a country. We would not be the United States were it not for slavery. You can look across all these aspects of modern day society and see the legacy of slavery. Sugar, geography, capitalism, why there's so much traffic in Atlanta. All of this kind of goes back to that original sin. 1619 was a sensation, driving record subscription numbers. It even got its own Super Bowl commercial. America was not yet America, but this was the moment it began. This new history rests on a radical revision of America's birth year. In the opening essay, Hannah Jones claimed that the founding fathers had actually declared independence to protect slavery. We were founded not as a democracy, but as a slaveocracy. All right, so that's just a little bit of a tease of what the 1619 Project is and was. Uh, We talked about it when it first came out, when the New York Times first featured it. Uh, we had, uh, we've had several discussions about it, but many things have happened since then. And let me just say that the whole notion of critical race theory, about systemic racism uh, being taught in corporations, in schools, uh, and really spreading like wildfire all over the country, could probably be pointed back to the establishment of that 1619 Project and their curriculum. No one knows more about this, really, or any more about this than Peter Wood. Peter is the president of the National Association of Scholars. He is an anthropologist and a former provost of a of an Ivy League school. He was appointed president of the NAS in January of 2009. Uh, he was also provost of the King's College in New York City. Uh, and so, um, and Peter's a good friend of mine. Peter, thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, so good to be back. So, Peter, um, let's talk about. Uh, the 1619 Project, we can talk about that. That was a pretty good intro, just a little touch. Uh, but where are we today? I said it had spread across the country, but can you quantify that about where are we as a result of all of our history being pinned on the first time the slaves came to this country? What has come from that notion? Well, what has come from it is a, a major battle in the division between conservatives and progressives. The progressive left has succeeded in implanting the 1619 project in the curriculum of tens of thousands of our schools. Uh, I can't put an exact number on it because they're not saying, but uh, what we've found is that coast to coast in every state, 
schools are adopting the 1619 project as part of their new anti-racist curricula. It's done sometimes with the enthusiasm of school boards, oftentimes with the pressure from school superintendents and principals and history teachers and civics teachers have taken taken it to heart in very large numbers. It's not confined to public schools. It's in parochial schools, private schools. It's pretty much everywhere right now. This is the educational left in the United States uh, thumbing its nose at America and presenting this as the true history of what we are as a nation. It's interesting, Peter, too, uh, we're talking about education today because that's where it starts. It's like priming the kids for this. Uh, but then it also is bleeding into corporations and, and uh, all kinds of establishments. It's just amazing uh, how they are trying to retrain Americans to think about their country in a very hate-filled, negative way. And we're going to talk more about that. Peter, I think uh, one thing, the 1619 Project is interesting. I mean, it's interesting. However twisted it is, it's very interesting. And Hannah uh, Nicole uh, Hannah Nicole Jones, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, sorry, is very, very interesting. Her own personal story is interesting. She's compelling, and she's got the full support of the New York Times. Uh, but let's back up a minute and go back in time. I have to tell you that um, I, I was in a store and recently found, like, uh, a little citizenship book for kids in school in the 50s. And I actually was trying to find it before we did this interview this morning, but uh, it was just amazing to go back in time and see the contrast with the way American children were educated about their country then and now. And, of course, this didn't just happen yesterday. We've had, I saw in the 70s when I first became a teacher, I saw how history began to be uh, retold, the Vietnam War, all of that. Uh, so this has actually, in some ways, been a, a more gradual process than we've probably s- stated. W- would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I think it has been underway for uh, the last 50 years or so as a effort to reconceptualize our country along the lines that the progressive left wants. Um, in a certain extent, what it wants is the dissolution of the country and its replacement with world citizenship or something like that, but it's in any case, is a, a process that has been going on for a very long time. Um, there's that famous quote in uh, uh, Hemingway's first novel, The Sun Also Rises, in which a man uh, explains how he went bankrupt. He went bankrupt first slowly, then suddenly. Well, we've been through the slowly part. We're doing the suddenly right now. Yeah. Paint a picture, if you would, of... Okay, the whole notion of civics is just the way your your government, your 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 country functions. It's the it's the nuts and bolts, but it includes history and all of that. Paint a picture, if you would, and you actually have included this in a statement, an open letter, uh, kind of restating what should be happening here. But state, if you will, what a student ideally, what should students be taught? What should be their civics instruction? What should be their education in this area of their curriculum? What should it be like? Yeah, it involves two things. It means learning the mechanics of self-government, but it also means learning the principles of self-government, who we are as a nation. So the mechanics part is pretty simple, actually. It means knowing what's in the Declaration of Independence, why we fought the War of Independence, how we got to the 
uh, Constitution, through the Articles of Confederation, what's in the Federalist Papers, why we adopted the uh, Bill of Rights, and onward through the next two centuries of development of the nation as a nation under the rule of law, in which we had a legislature that's divided into two houses. We have a government that's divided into three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial. That's stuff that isn't really hard to learn, but it doesn't pop into your head all by itself. Someone has to teach it. And that knowledge is necessary in order to become a citizen of this country in the full sense of the word. Uh, You have to understand what a jury is and why it is, uh, what a grand jury is, how the police and military function in a a state that is self-governing. The division of the nation between a federal government and the government of the states and the importance of the uh, matters that are left to the jurisdiction of the states. Um, That's the the stuff of uh, civics. It can, of course, be taught in dry and boring ways, but need not be. The other part of it, though, that has to be fused with that knowledge is the importance of recognizing that we are a self-governing nation, that we have a culture that regards uh, people as individuals, that upholds the rights of individuals, and also expects responsibilities from individuals. That, um, that is the, the flavor of our form of civics. And if that doesn't get taught and we just get the mechanics, it's not enough. Those two things really have to be brought together and taught well to young people so that by the time they reach voting age, they understand what their responsibilities are for maintaining this country and of helping each other to be productive citizens of uh, a, a representative democracy, which is what yeah. we have taught. Well, and our a free society cannot function unless people are informed. And I would say, Peter, too, uh, when I was growing up, you, everyone, no exceptions, everyone was required to pass a Constitution test or you couldn't graduate from the eighth grade. Uh, and if you couldn't pass it, well, you couldn't graduate. That's how important it was uh, in the uh, earlier, several decades ago in this country. And uh, now we can see, we can see on our streets we can see in our young people, our own children, our grandchildren, that they don't have a clue about the basic, the foundational basics of this country, not only its history, but also its system of government. And that's, that's a huge reason why we are where we are, don't you think? I think that's exactly right. You know, we, we see these spot tests all the time now where people are asked, you know, how many branches of government are there? Uh, in, in what century was the Civil War fought? And the answers are appallingly bad. Large percentages of Americans don't know the most basic things. They take for granted this country, and by taking it for granted, they become susceptible to all sorts of lies and misrepresentations. 1619 Project is only one of the latest and most spectacular of those misrepresentations. You know, one thing I find, too, is that uh, I don't even think there's a basic understanding of what freedom means in the in the, in the sense of... Uh, the Americans uh, wanting people to be free. I think they think it's freedom to behave however they want to behave or practice any vice they want to practice. They don't even, I know I'm throwing this at you as a surprise, but how would you define, we just have a few minutes left before this break, freedom. What does freedom uh, from our founding fathers, what did that mean? 
it means self-government. It means freedom from tyranny, freedom from people who tell you what to do rather than allowing you to decide what to do. Uh, that kind of freedom uh, is quite different from just the libertine who takes his freedom as an opportunity to lead a dissolute life. Um, freedom can be taken in that direction, but it just it simply becomes a different kind of tyranny, a tyranny of appetite. What uh, the freedom that we have revolves around the notion of self-government, not just self-government of the country, but self-government of the individual, knowing how to lead your life in an orderly way. And uh, freedom leads to uh, disaster if it gets divorced from that sense of self-government. Yes, and I think uh, the Founding Fathers said this so often, uh, that uh, the only way people could be free and the only way this system would work is if people were self-disciplined. I think you touched on that, but they talked about religion and morality, that the foundation of this freedom had to be religion and morality, which was self-imposed. And then who was it that said it's good for none, no other kind of people? It won't work for anybody else. So as the self-control has broken down and the lack of acknowledgement of God and any rules and precepts, so has the system broken down, just as our founding fathers predicted. Yes, well, I fear that's a pretty good diagnosis of exactly where we are today. Um, this is a nation that has forgotten what it means to be a, a nation under God, and certainly has forgotten what it means to be self-disciplined. So, uh, one of the things I want to talk about next, Peter, is how we got to this. We've talked about it a little bit. Uh, we talked about the fact that this is nothing new. We, I would also say that the radicals of the 60s went into education uh, and they became, they shaved their beards and uh, washed themselves and went into the classroom and now there are professors around. So uh, it's, the, it's been the long march through the institutions and they've been very successful. But, and there are other practical things that are more recent history uh, that we could talk about that are kind of hallmarks of how this thing evolved. And I'd like to talk about that next. Things like... Um, iCivics, and also, you know, the uh, the Crucible moment that was a paper written by the Obamas in 2012. Let's talk about those steps that we saw unfold uh, when we come back. My guest is Peter Wood. He's the president of the National Association of Scholars. That's NAS.org, NAS.org, a great organization, which I'm proud to belong to. And uh, I hope you stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Andy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Do you believe that 1619 is a factual program? Martha, I believe that I'm a history teacher and I'm a social mm -hmm. studies teacher. And I believe we should teach history. Um, and from everything I can see and understand from the data I see, 1619 was the year that the first slave um, boat came from Africa to the Correct. United States. So that's a point in history.
then I think we should be teaching. But that's, I mean, that's very simplistic, um, you know, take on it. I mean, the, the 1619 Project teaches that, the, that that's the true beginning and the founding of our nation not 1776, and that the reason for the revolution and the colonization was because people wanted to preserve, colonists wanted to preserve slavery, that the country was founded on the basis of wanting to preserve slavery, but that is not factual. That is not true. In fact, scholars in this area say there's no evidence that colonists were motivated by that in coming to the United States. So it would be wrong as a historian to want to teach them something that is not true because that's the basis that sets up all these other tenets that lead to teaching kids that we live in a systemically racist country. So I would actually say that I've had several conversations with Nicole Hannah-Jones mm -hmm. and I have not arrived at the same conclusion from her work as you have, but let's put it this way. Well, that's not my conclusion. That's directly from their work, but go ahead. I would hope that Fox would be just as focused on let's get rid of the misinformation about what happened in this election. This election was oh, free. Come on, Randy, come on. This is not the topic that we're here to talk about. I'm not going to talk about that. We've talked about that before, but that is, no, you're, that's a dodge, okay? It was a dodge, all right. That was Martha McCallum with uh, Randy Weingarten, who is the president of the American uh, Federation of Teachers. That's one of the, the second largest teachers union in the country. And she does, absolutely, and has said in writing that she embraces this new curriculum. That was a real a dance that she did with Martha last night. And uh, that's who's teaching your children, and that is in part how we got to this point. Peter Wood is my guest. He's the president of the National Association of Scholars. So, Peter, let's go back and talk about at least the more contemporary uh, version of where, how we got here today. Uh, would, you, would you trace it, the more aggressive part of this, back to the Obama administration? Well, yes, the Obama administration's uh, commissioned report, The Crucible Moment, called for a new civics. And for a while, the term new civics was the uh, uh, main designator of this thing. The new civics was to consist of replacing the kinds of civics that we just talked about with a uh, combination of multiculturalism or diversity, uh, sustainability or radical environmentalism, and teaching students to become citizens of the world as opposed to citizens of their own country. Um, the new civics got picked up very quickly by colleges and universities. We did a study of how it was uh, working in Colorado and Wyoming at public colleges there, and uh, as part of that found that there were over 60 now national organizations that were busy promoting this both in colleges and in schools. The, uh, the name of it began to shift by the last part of the last decade to action civics rather than new civics. The action civics idea was that students would be uh, trained to be activists in their own schools and campuses. They would learn not the nuts and bolts of how our self-government works, but the nuts and bolts of Alinskyite activism, what you do in order to change things through pressure tactics, deception, through uh, rioting, if need be. But um, this could be played in a, um, a kind of gentle manner by initially teaching students the importance of volunteering. Then you ended up volunteering for left-wing causes and being drawn into 
the program of the progressive left generally. So um, we've been through a decade in which the new civics advanced into action civics and teaching activism as uh, uh, something that could be presented gently to the public as service learning. Uh, so we're doing public service. That's all we're doing. Uh, became the uh, the way in which this transformation began to happen. Um, you know, now while Peter, no, go ahead. no, I just was going to interject a uh, uh, recollection here because uh, during the this year of uh, uh, shutdowns, with teachers being off work, you know, it was according to reports I've read, it was public school teachers who were out. Uh, demonstrating, working, uh, marching against President Trump before the election. And my understanding is, you know, they, it isn't, uh, students are not, you know, choosing as their project to work for young Republicans. They are, they're really being um, influenced greatly. I'll use the word influenced. I won't say coerced. Uh, to follow their teachers uh, in the lead with leftist politics. It is particularly the politics of the left. It's not an equal opportunity action civics or, or am I wrong? Are there exceptions to that? I don't know of any. Um, no doubt somewhere in the world there are students who take the mandate to volunteer to go work for uh, you know, the right to bear arms, but um, that's just speculative. What I do know is that they end up working for Planned Parenthood or organizations that promote parts of the leftist agenda. The um, The shape of all this is that it began to merge with the Black Lives Matter uh, agenda and 1619 and Ibram X. Kendi's view of anti-racism uh, became fused as part of what um, the new civics would entail. To now be a proper citizen of the world, you had to learn to hate white people and to despise the history of your country and regard its borders as fundamentally illegitimate. Um, so uh, along the path towards the rise of new civics was the conjunction of a bunch of uh, threads of the leftist agenda. So now we know about critical race theory, and that too gets part of the curriculum. Or we know yeah. about the diversity, equity, inclusion. An intersection well. and intersectionality, where you count up in, the categories in, in which you are oppressed. I'm up right. to two, by the way, Peter. I'm counting two and counting. I'm looking for more ways I can cash in on my oppression. Mm. But um, I, I want to read. You mentioned uh, Ibram Kendi, and I want to. He's the most recognized proponent of critical race theory. This is what he said, just to give people an idea of the kinds of people that are behind these. Uh, these very dangerous and deadly poisonous ideas. He says, the defining question is whether the dis discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Can you translate that, Peter? Uh, yes. Um, either you're with me or you're against me. And if you're with me, then you agree that uh, the only 
permissible regime is one in which black racism prevails and everyone else uh, accedes to that as a necessary corrective to centuries of injustice. So when it comes to equity, equity sounds like another name for reparations, sort of, like another form, another form, expression of reparations. How would you describe equity versus inequity from the left's point of view? Well, from the left point of view, equity consists of radical redistribution of material resources. So, uh, yes, it is a form of reparation, but the idea extends beyond our simply wealth to every social good that you can think of. If anyone has more of one thing than another, that has to be evaluated on a racial basis and uh, the excess redistributed to the other side that has less. Uh, but that works only in one direction. If it happens that uh, uh, African Americans have more of a particular good, that doesn't have to be redistributed. It only happens if uh, people who are classified as white have the excess. So, uh, in other words, no quotas. No quotas in NBA basketball or in NFL football. No quotas exactly. for white players. Okay, so really, I mean, that's that's yeah. So, um, Peter, let's go back to. Kind of putting this in perspective, because uh, we talked about that a crucible moment that was prepared, that was a piece prepared by the Obama administration, and out of that came the new civics, the activism, and then the iCivics, which was like a game, right? Some sort of a game? Yes. Uh, iCivics has a very peculiar history. This is a, an organization that was co-founded by um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, after she had left the court, um, and its idea is that to make old, boring civics interesting again, we can turn it into games, and we will teach all the key ideas uh, by games, and we all know young kids love video games and things like that, so this is the perfect way to make uh, learning civics um, palatable to people who might not otherwise be willing to pick it up. Um, iCivics has since pretty much merged with the agenda of the uh, radical left. This is now the, the avenue by which we're going to teach kids to be um, the citizens of the world, and uh, the civics we're going to learn is going to be activist civics. Yeah. Okay, so so then you had all of this these things developing, and then along comes uh, the 1619 Project, which has been about... Uh, Maybe 18 months ago was when the first time we talked about this. Uh, so that was the Nicole Hannah-Jones curriculum, and the New York Times got under it. And we've already talked about the, the, the uh, great gains it's made. And then along comes President Trump, and along comes, at, in the final, really, uh, final hours of his administration, he forms the 1776 Commission. Many of my friends were on that commission, but tell people what that was all about, Peter. Well, I think you have to go back to Trump's speech at the uh, Mount Rushmore in July. I was there in person. It was phenomenal. Uh, so South Dakota, the, the uh, monument, the big faces of the presidents are in the backdrop, and he delivers this incredible speech about our nation's history. So, so from that... Yeah, so that, that, that was the moment in which Trump pivoted to paying some attention to the, the culture uh, and not just the politics. And um, it was uh, 
the beginning of his willingness to embrace this larger issue. So in September of uh, last year, uh, the White House called a historian's conference, which was held at the National Archives. I was one of the speakers. There were about eight of us there. And after we spoke, Trump spoke, in which he laid out this idea that we're going to push back against the 1619 project or the 1776 project, which was going to take the initial form of his creating a commission um, on 1776. Well, he didn't actually get around to appointing the members of the commission until December, and then in a very rush of activity, they were able to produce what I would describe as a kind of uh, preface to what a 1776 curriculum might look like. That was released on uh, Martin Luther King Day, actually a pretty appropriate day for it. Uh, And then two days later, uh, Biden was sworn in as president, and one of his first acts on that first busy day was to abolish the 1776 commission. uh, And that began what has become a wholesale endorsement of 1776 from Biden and his appointees and the education department. It's also been taken up by leading Democrats in the House and Senate. So 1776 is now uh, done for good, at least so we're told from the highest levels of the American government, and 1619 is going to be uh, the official uh, history of our country. Now, you've mentioned some of the ways in which that is wrong, but you know, let me, I can't miss the opportunity to add that slavery didn't begin uh, in 1619. It didn't begin in Jamestown. It didn't begin in uh, the country that was going to become the United States. It had been in the New World uh, for millennia before because Native American tribes enslaved each other. They enslaved white people when they came along. Uh, The Spanish and Portuguese for a century earlier had been importing African slaves into South America, the Caribbean, and into what was going to be the United States, into Florida and uh, Georgia. So whatever story we're telling, um, it's just factually incorrect that slavery began in Virginia in 1619. And in fact, those people who were brought here as slaves by a pirate ship were, were turned into indentured servants and a few years later set free. So this story really couldn't be more wrong than than it uh, had she designed it to be utterly false. But from that false beginning grows a giant tree of further falsehood. The whole 1619 project is made up of nonsense. So now we have a new education secretary, Miguel Cardona, who has introduced a a federal register, 30-day public comment period, uh, and they're citing the New York Times 1619 Project, the works of critical race theorist Ibram Kendi, who we just quoted, as exemplary materials for K-12 educators to use. That's how uh, quickly and deeply this thing has grown. When we return, Peter, let's talk about what people are doing to fight back and what people listening can do to fight back. This is Cindy Rios. My guest is Peter Woods. You can go to National Association of Scholars' website at nas.org and find all of this great information plus more. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. 
Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. I do think we need to rediscover in our K-12 system the founding of the country. What makes the country unique? Our Constitution, our founding fathers, some of the great figures throughout our history, whether it's a Lincoln or an MLK or a Reagan winning the Cold War. Uh, but when you do that, it's got to be true and solid and factual. And you can't let it become infected with left-wing ideology like critical race theory. Critical race theory is basically teaching people to hate our country, hate each other. It's divisive. And it's basically an identity politics version of Marxism. So I don't think it has any place in the classroom, certainly shouldn't be funded by tax dollars. So as we're doing this bold civics initiative, which is important, I think people like that. But I think a lot of people look at it and say, well, okay, they better be teaching the right stuff. So we're going to have a depoliticized curriculum. We're not going to let that stuff in there. And I think that that's going to serve students well in the state of Florida for years to come. All right, that, that was Ron DeSantis, as I said in another show this week. I think I could do a whole show on every day on Ron DeSantis' latest fighting back uh, in the state of Florida. He is really leading the way, and we're very grateful for him. But he's not the only person who's fighting back. Uh, Governor Brad Little of Idaho has just signed a bill into law prohibiting public schools, including public universities, from teaching that any sex, race, Ethnicity, religion, color, or national origin is inherently superior and inferior. Tennessee has banned teaching, critical race theory. Uh, the Arizona State House has passed a really strong bill banning critical race theory indoctrination. And I know that in Texas, uh, I mentioned this to you this week, there was a school board uh, race there. I think it's, I want to say Harris. I, I can't remember exactly that. But, but uh, the point is they were able to replace uh, some of their school board members because of this very issue. Peter Wood is my guest. He's, again, the president of the National Association of Scholars. Peter, what? how would you describe the fight back from parents that you're seeing? I think it's a genuine grassroots rebellion against uh, an elite that was contemptuous of what people thought about their own country. Um, and, you know, the, the politicians are coming to it only after recognizing that the public is really worked up about this thing. That uh, when you see a, a school board outside Dallas uh, that throwing out the existing school board members and replacing them with new people who can um, fight back against 1619, I think you're really seeing the beginning of uh, something that is meant, which is going to sweep through a lot of America. Now, I mean, it's one thing, I suppose, for it to happen in Texas, but um, I'm right now preparing to talk to a bunch of people in Scarsdale, New York, very liberal, very progressive. The parents are upset. They've not switched their party allegiances, but they're thinking, my goodness, we can't see our children sacrificed uh, on this altar of uh, political correctness. And... uh, that kind of uh, uh, bipartisan opposition to the uh, dramatic changes being imposed by an elite is not something entirely new in American history, but it's it's new for our time. Uh, the, the left is just pushed too far here, and what it's doing is really getting under people's skin. There's a, there's a new organization called Parents Defending Education, 
is uh, essentially uh, the equivalent of the Tea Party coming up uh, to say this is not going to pass. And I think that's going to have real effect on how our elected leaders at state and national level are going to act, at least I hope so. Yes, Um, Peter, I think you're right. And actually, let me just say that this has kind of been a theme in this show lately, and that is local involvement. And we have seen stories like Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, just organized and won 85% of the seats that were up in a special election they had about uh, four weeks ago. And I think part of it was the school board in the county that you're talking about outside of Texas, that was uh, South Lake, the South Lake school board election. They won by 70%. Uh, they got they pitched out the bad members and got in some great members uh, and uh, people are getting uh, they're getting active all over the country. We want to encourage everyone to to continue to do that to get involved and organized wherever you are. If parents would just speak up, they could move mountains. The problem is that parents have sort of abdicated. They've had busy lives and they have trusted their schools, their teachers, their school boards. Uh, I can tell you personally, those days were over a long time ago, the ability to trust, but some of you weren't as active as I was and didn't notice. But I certainly did at the time. We fought back when my son was growing up over what they, were sh- what they had in the books, the, cr- the, the books that they were signing children to read. It was horrendous. And, Peter, we went to battle with the school board, and they were the town I was living in, the county, were very, they were very highly educated people. Parents came. They were doctors, lawyers. And the school board's decision was to ignore, even though there were probably 100 parents in one of those meetings, they completely ignored the parents and told the kids they couldn't even opt out. Uh, that was in the, in the state of Illinois, Chicago area. So this is not new. My son is not young anymore. Uh, but um, now I think there is more traction because people are actually replacing these school board members in a way that they should. As their civic duty, they're managing to do that. And... Um, so what can people do? Are, do you have some tools to equip parents to actually do something like that or just some kind of reference so they know uh, they, they're busy and they can't articulate the issues the way that you can? Uh, what are some tools that we could give them? Well, we've created a civics alliance, which is open to anybody to join, and the civics alliance is putting out tools. We, have, we even call it a toolkit for people to use. Um, there are many steps to this. Some of them are insider academic things, but a great many of them are just things that ordinary public can do. Um, I can uh, sort of take a, a bigger pushback from this. That school boards oftentimes have separate school board elections, which tend to be dominated by the teachers' union. It would be a really good step if we could get our school board elections combined with our regular election cycle so that that uh, effort to have a special interest to grab hold of the school boards and put their own people in uh, could be offset by people who generally do want to vote, but vote on the big public issues. This is becoming one. Um, We have a model curriculum that can be adapted to the local schools. We don't have a one-size-fits-all approach, but we do have recommendations of things to do and not to do, uh, making sure that the, the 1619 curriculum, which is riddled with falsehoods, is not part of the uh, uh, agenda in the schools, uh, can be done either at the local level or in state levels. Now we've got 
whole bunch of states that have acted against it, Arkansas, Iowa, Mississippi, Missouri, South Dakota, um, uh, Florida, Arizona, Tennessee, um, and that has to keep going into as many states as we can possibly get it. So there is local action with your school board. There are actions to be taken at the state level, and there's a huge fight that we ought to be having to defeat the what's called the Civic Secures Democracy Act, which is this monster that would give over a billion dollars a year to support the, the new civics uh, and spread it all around the country so that even red states would be possibly willing to buy into it because it's such a large amount of money. So Which is what, like, the, what, like they, what they did with Common Core. Sort of exactly. like a bribe. Common Core like, is their, their model. That's exactly what they want to do. Yeah. The Common well, Core was the race to the top. This is the new race to the bottom. And uh, just because people might not all know that, in order to expedite Common Core under the Obama administration, they did offer big money to schools for adopting it. And they made it sound so good. They made it sound so good. So schools, and it happened very quickly, Peter, as I recall. I think school boards adopted it, uh, and states adopted it, before they even really understood what Common Core was. And right. it was Arnie a disaster. Duncan, who was the, you know, he was the uh, head of the Department of Education, and they put up a really short deadline, something like four or five months, to get on. The Common Core hadn't even been written yet, so people were buying a big pig in the poke. Now, ten years later, nobody wants to talk about Common Core because, by general consent, it was an absolute disaster. But we're kind of stuck with it because we spent so many billions of dollars replacing the old textbooks and the old teacher training with something to make uh, Common Core stick. So you can think of the new civics as an uh, adjunct to Common Core. This is going to be yet another step towards politicizing public education and all forms of education to uh, bring about the socialist utopia that the left has been dying to implant. Now, a few things, uh, and these are kind of combined, but um, there's a civics alliance that Peter has organized, and you are invited to join this and also to sign their letter. It said they have an open letter, and let me give you a taste of what it says. We write to express our objection to this subordination of civics education and to dedicate ourselves to joint work to restore true civics instruction, which teaches American students to comprehend aspects of American government, such as the rule of law, the Bill of Rights, elections, elected office, checks and balances, trial by jury, grand juries, civil rights, and military service. American students should learn from these lessons the founding principles of the United States, the structure of our self-governing republic, the functions of government at all levels, and how our key institutions work. That's just one paragraph, one of the opening paragraphs, and you can sign this by going to nas.org and add your signature. And then also there is, with this, sort of a template uh, for a curriculum. It's not a full-blown curriculum, but it's a template. Let's talk about that, um, Peter. Let's talk about what you are suggesting. Like for K through 8, what are you suggesting? What, what, do you think we should go back to requiring people to pass a test on the Constitution in order to uh, advance to, into high school? I think that would be a great idea. I mean, among other things we've proposed is that um, when they do graduate from high school, they ought to be able to pass the citizenship test that... Uh, immigrants to this country must pass to become citizens. So that requires 
fairly broad knowledge of who we are and where we came from. Um, Civics should be a fascinating subject. Most people actually, when they learn about what happened during the American Revolution, want to know more. You have to forcibly prevent them from learning more. Um, So we are uh, thinking that our civics education should be fused with what students learn about American history and uh, what it means to be part of uh, this nation right from the earliest grades on. Um, Certainly, the 1619 Project and, and similar things are beginning at an early age. We should, too. And that's part of what we're recommending. Um, the, uh, our reforms require a willingness to be objective. We're not saying that we want to teach only a sugar-coated history of America that leaves out our failings and the errors in which we haven't done well. That should be taught, too, but not in a manner that it is, uh, it undercuts or disgraces the whole. That, that love of liberty, that pursuit of truth, uh, our sense of it being a, an exceptional nation under God belong in the curriculum as well. Well, maybe the courts won't allow us to say God, but I think we get the idea that this is a nation that has a destiny very different from that of most of the nations in the world, and understanding why that's so is crucial and needs to be implanted early in the discussion. You know, I was just uh, another memory, 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 when I was in Chicago. This is a long time ago. This is in the 90s. Uh, The legislature, the Senate and the House passed what was called the American Heritage Act. And that sounds great, doesn't it? It's kind of like the For the People Act. Uh, It actually forbade a history text, uh, American history text in public schools from mentioning God. So as you can imagine, Peter, there was a lot of editing that had to happen with those original documents because God is yeah. mentioned all the time. It's, it's hard. You could say, you know, teachers could not mention God, but if the kids could read the documents, they'd want to understand how much faith uh, in God, in one God, our, our, our founding fathers had. Well, Peter, this has been fascinating, and I, I just appreciate so much your heart to turn this thing around, and I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, we're going to do everything we can for homeschoolers. Uh, there's lots of great ideas here. There's a lot of great books out for you to... Uh, to use with your children, a lot of curriculum. But for those of you that are in public school still, go to uh, national, nas.org, sign this civics curriculum statement, and then print out that uh, t- template, and it will give you an idea of what could happen. And then get involved in your school. Get involved in your school board. Get in your, involved in your child's school. And don't be so timid. Fight for what's right and fight for your children. Peter Wood, thank you so much. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. AFR Talk.